Dusty, what's the one book you can always find in our car when we're on a trip? Honestly, Mike, it is usually a Moon travel guide. That's right. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because not only are they a source for ethical travel and the best ways to get away, but their books also are packed full of information on everything from sites to see, trails to hike, restaurants, and lodging, all from real authors who are local to the areas they're writing about. That's right. And we're so excited that this year we are again partnering with Moon Travel Guides. Ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips, but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed abroad, planning to take to the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon Travel Guide with you. Through the end of 2024, our listeners can get 20% off any Moon Travel Guide when they use the code GAZE20 at checkout. That's amazing. And that is code GAZE24, G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library. And that is just for our listeners, and you cannot find that anywhere else. Be sure to visit Moon.com. Head to our show notes and check it out and see Moon's entire collection of travel guide books. So let's talk about oral history and and, uh, history that's been passed down for a minute. Um, You do some oral history work, Dusty, right? I do. I do some oral history work with an organization called Colab Arts. We are committed to recording oral histories. Then those oral histories are used as primary source documents in the creation of other artistic work that is created with those people who shared their stories. You know, what do you think the importance of oral history is it just in general from the work that you've done oral history has a really interesting beginning as far as like the way that it started to get recorded or like why we started to record stories as histories which i encourage everybody to research and find out about but the idea of oral history came about because just not every story was being written down or represented in the writing of history. Mm -hmm. So oral history is a way for us to conserve the stories that shaped our communities and our world in a way that will get the stories down on paper a little bit faster. It is the um, act of recording someone else's history. An oral historian will sit with someone and they will ask a few questions and then that person will then tell their story and it will be audio recorded. Then the audio recording gets transcribed so that now it is written down. Many stories from long ago were just not written down. And sometimes, you know, when it comes to history, there's like things that happened, the things that we remember, the things that get written down. And like over time, you know, the narrative is based on what makes it through to the end of that finish line there of things that get written down through the sieve. So it's like oral history is a way for us to record more history than we had before. I am an advocate for that work because it allows us to hear from many, many, many different voices. Searching for the history of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender history, 
may seem a particularly queer conceit, and searching for meaningful places associated with efforts to document, preserve, interpret, and share that history may seem queerer still. After all, every individual has a past, so at first glance, it may appear that every social group must have a shared heritage. For those who benefit from a position of power and respect, that heritage can take the form of historical knowledge elaborated over the course of centuries and conveyed via institutions of state and culture such as schools, museums, and monuments. Those marginalized by hierarchies of class, race, language, or immigrant status are often ignored in such settings, yet they have managed to convey their heritage through more informal means, with elders telling their children or grandchildren stories of earlier times that succeeding generations pass along as a vital family inheritance. This was a passage from the National Park Service's LGBTQ Heritage Theme Study. Today's Pride Mix is all about Mabel Hampton, her life, and her importance in the recording of queer history. So Mabel's story is actually preserved by Joan Nessel, who was a co-founder of the Lesbian Herstory Archives and one of her closest friends. Throughout the late 1970s and early 80s, she interviewed Mabel several times in basically what has become an oral history of, of Mabel's life and their time together and their work at the Lesbian Herstory Archives. Mabel Hampton, a Black American lesbian activist, was born in 1903 in North Carolina. She moved to New York City when she was a young girl, and she lived with her uncle, but then she ran away from his house because he was abusive. She was still very much a young woman at this time. She took the subway on her own, and then she ended up in New Jersey and was taken in and raised by a working-class Black family. When Mabel was 17 years old, she uh, ended up moving out, and she moved to Harlem. And this was right in 1920. So it was the start of the Roaring Twenties. Women had just gotten the right to vote. Prohibition was in full swing here. So we have speakeasy culture happening. And Harlem in this moment is becoming the center of Black literature and art. So at the time, Coney Island was also becoming a hotspot. The subway fare to Coney Island was lowered to just five cents, and it was basically dubbed the infamous Nickel Empire. And it's here where Mabel started her very young life as someone that lived on the stage. She worked as a dancer and a singer with all black female ensembles. It was at this time that she met someone that was incredibly influential into understanding who she was as a person, an older woman who basically introduced her to the term lesbian. Mabel quickly realized that this was exactly who she was, um, that she had you know, already experienced some of the things that this term encompassed. She learned a lot from this woman who she really only was able to spend like a night with. She didn't stay on Coney Island for long, though. She moved to other theaters, including the Garden of Eden and the Lafayette Theater. And this was also a very pivotal moment for Mabel because she was spending her time with other incredibly prominent artists of the time that also happened to be queer black women. They included comedian Jackie Moms Mabley, um, entertainer Gladys Bentley, uh, the singer Ethel Waters, 
her girlfriend, dancer Ether Williams, and heiress and socialite Aaliyah Walker. In 1924, Mabel was sent to prison because she was arrested for prostitution. This was the 1920s, and that means that the police at this time could cite that an unescorted woman who was leaving a bar could be considered a sex worker. So she was arrested, and then uh, the judge that tried her was Judge Jean Norris, and she was uh, New York City's first female judge, and she was famous for being extremely harsh on both black women and sex workers. So she sent Mabel to the Bedford Hills Reformatory for Women, which is a women's prison, for three years. Bedford Hills was actually full of queer women, and Mabel was able to meet many, many different queer women while she was there. She found a way to sort of like use this time here at Bedford Hills to her advantage. She was considered a, quote, model prisoner. And then after she left, she even was able to get the Bedford administration to like look out for her, especially when it came to like employees who underpaid her or perhaps overworked her. After she left Bedford, she also left the stage. Her heart wasn't in it. Performing was not her passion. Show business had, you know, its own set of setbacks and knocks that came along with it, including inherent misogyny um, and racism that was pervasive um, at the time and continues to be in, in many ways. She eventually started to work as a house cleaner, um, which is how she met Joan Nessel's mother, and then eventually Joan Nessel, who became her lifelong friend and the recorder of much of Mabel's oral history. In 1932, she met the love of her life, Lillian Foster, and the two lived together in the Bronx until her death, until Lillian's death in 1978. They were always at the center of a large social group of queer women, and much of their eventual estate was donated to the lesbian herstory archives. In order to understand the beginnings of the lesbian herstory archive, we first have to understand how the gay liberation and lesbian feminist movements of the late 1960s and the 1970s created underlying structure for the research, collection, and cataloging of its history. Okay, so... There were three things that all started to happen all at the same time regarding the history of gay men and lesbians and transgender and bisexual people in America. And it all started really in the 1970s with what we call the era of gay liberation, which was thrust into happening because of the Stonewall riots of 1969. And then it continued on into through the 80s. Um, But here are the three things that all happened at the same time. This is from the LGBTQ heritage theme study from the NPS. These three things were the founding of the first organizations devoted primarily or entirely to documenting, researching, interpreting, and disseminating this history, the contributions of a growing number of independent scholars, and the emergence of the first historians to address the subject of homosexuality in the setting of university humanities departments. So a lot of these developments were basically reflecting really a decades-old desire for self-affirmation and a common heritage amongst people with same-sex attractions and non-normative gender identities that were basic tenets and um, things that were pushed for in 
the gay liberation in the 70s that, you know, continued into the 80s. There was a real importance on sharpening the assertion that a shared past not only was a tool for the formation of identity and community, but so that it could also be used as political strategy for influencing internal and external debates about what lesbian and gay communities um, were looking for as far as respect from society as a whole. So this kind of like coalescing of all of these different histories was really important because it gave the movement a lot of momentum. It gave a lot of political sway, and it also allowed the groundwork to be laid for the gay rights movement that came out of it. So there was a lot of importance in this gathering of history, whether it was oral, whether it was written, whether it was printed, and this then using that history as a tool to then go forth and establish the community as something that has always been there and something that was important and something that deserved rights going forward. It was at this time uh, in the 1970s that people started consciously collecting queer literature, queer periodicals, writings that conserved what is the queer experience, but also writings that conserved the, the points of view of queer people and the art of queer people. So there were a lot of institutions that were doing this. There are three that were really sort of like ahead of the curve on doing this. Uh, One of them was uh, One Incorporated. There was also the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University, as well as the Joseph A. Labati Collection at the University of Michigan. These places certainly were leading the charge in collecting uh, queer literature, queer writing, queer art, But community-based organizations started to pop up all over the place, particularly in cities. But they sort of served the role that the library would not serve for queer people specifically. You know, a queer person in the 1970s could not go to a public library, most public libraries, and find anything written about other queer people. So that was what these community-based organizations did. And... um, they uh, collected books, articles, newspapers, and then also they ended up becoming community gathering spaces. And because of that, they offered public programming. They also offered art galleries and talks and also um, meetings for people. These spaces became safe spaces for queer people and it connected to archiving queer history. Scholar Anne Kovetkovich says of gathering and archiving LGBTQ historical materials, quote, the traumatic loss of history that has accompanied sexual life and the formation of sexual publics, and they assert the role of memory and effect in compensating for institutional neglect like other archives of trauma, such as those that commemorate the Holocaust, slavery, or war, they must enable the acknowledgement of a past that can be painful to remember, impossible to forget, and resistant to consciousness. So one of these first very early formally established um, archives or organizations was the Lesbian Herstory Archive. And it was actually conceived in 1974 
during discussions that were held at a lesbian feminist conscious raising group in Manhattan. Enter Joan Nessel, who was a member. At one meeting in 1974, Julia Stanley and Joan Nessel, who were early gay activists, they had come out before the gay liberation movement, they were looking for some way to have some sort of archiving in place that would be able to explore the roots of the movement and explore queer history. They talked about the precariousness of lesbian culture and how much so much of the past culture was seen only through patriarchal eyes. And so they were really looking for a way to define their history on their own terms and define their history through the voices of women. Um, So in 1972, prior to the formation of LHA or the Lesbian History Archives, Joan Nessel and a group of other women and men, most of those who were educated at the City University of New York and were participants in that liberation movement of the 60s, founded the Gay Academic Union. And that was dedicated to representing concerns of lesbian and gay students, teachers, and workers. Um, And this launched projects to ensure that there was inclusion of gay material in content, in course content. At the first conference of the organization, a bomb threat emptied the auditorium, but they continued on. So not only is there this idea of preserving and kind of cataloging, But there's this idea of inclusion when it comes to um, the content of courses, protective rights. So it really is this kind of snowball effect that's starting to happen through this collection of history. And if you remember what I said earlier, a lot of like the idea of collecting this history and utilizing it, there was political motivation to utilize it as a springboard for the gay community as a way to be heard and as a way to established rights for themselves especially at a time when it was illegal right to be gay right so the formation of the gay academic union had happened and that included men and women a number of the women who were part of the gay academic union decided to start having meetings outside of the larger meetings to talk about sexism in the gay academic union because they were feeling like the dominant voice here was the male queer voice, which is still true to this day. If you look at gay culture, gay culture is still predominantly white and gay. Right. This laid the groundwork for creating a grassroots lesbian archive that became essentially the lesbian history archive. This group started getting bigger and bigger and they started having more and more people like come to their meetings. And so then they said in 1974, they were like, okay, we need to like, we need to get our voices out there so that other people know that we're around. So they sent off news releases to all of the existing lesbian and feminist and gay publications. They announced what they were doing and all of them said yes to publishing their press release And so um, in 1975, the uh, Lesbian History Archives finally published its first free newsletter. In that same year, the archives found its home for what was the next 15 years at Joan Nestle's Upper West Side Manhattan apartment. She and Deborah Edel shared those years with the archives as its home. They were not the only people that were there. The archives had thousands of visitors and volunteers that were there, you know, most of the time. They agreed, Joan and Deb, that those first 10 years of the archives 
were really a way for them to build trust in the community um, that it was serving. So that was like an important mission in the first 10 years of the archives. They wanted to be able to keep those services for the archives free um, and to not seek government funding for it, but to build, again, here's that grassroots word again, build some grassroots support for the organization. Um, So what they did to accomplish that was a myriad of things. And that includes carrying around early journal issues. They carried photographs, letters, and they essentially took them out into the community to have community engagement. And that community engagement was in so many different ways, um, including women's festivals, um, gay church and synagogue gatherings, classrooms, and bars. So basically, in order to grow the organization, they realized that it couldn't And to grow support for it, they couldn't just, you know, stay, the archives couldn't stay kind of hermetically sealed. They needed to be able to travel so that word could spread so that interest and also money could come back into the archives so that they could continue. So it became this kind of like traveling exhibit almost in some ways or this traveling archive that was able to create engagement for people that maybe were unaware that it was a thing so that then people could become aware, become involved and support. Right. And one of the ways that they did that was by creating a slideshow. I mean, we sit, I mean, Google Slides. I live in Google Slides, right? And Mm -hmm. now it's so easy, Right. right? You know? Uh, But at the time, in the 1970s, obviously, that's not the technology that we're working with. We have to, like, photo capture something and shrink it down and make actual physical slides and then hit the button and hear the... Right. As it changes. Through that technology, they were able to create a way to present their archive. Mm -hmm. Because of this, they were able to travel around. And uh, Joan was able to give hundreds of speeches and um, do tours all over the country speaking to groups and use the slideshow to help her. And a version of this slideshow still exists today. As the Lesbian History Archive started to grow, more people started to get involved. Georgia Brooks, who was an activist from New Jersey and New York, joined and she launched the first Black Lesbian Studies group at the archives. So this brings us back to Mabel Hampton, who was incredibly active at the Lesbian History Archives until her death, essentially. Um, So she was someone that was had such an important part of lesbian history. Mabel also brought a different perspective to the Lesbian History Archive as a black woman. She had a long history of working with other black entertainers who were also lesbians. So there was a lot of things that she was bringing to the table um, that may have otherwise been missing or completely left out. She donated her extensive collection of 1950s lesbian paperbacks and often came to volunteer nights. She devoted one night a week to the volunteers working with the collection, who were groups of very different women spread out over the whole apartment that were responsible for filing, sorting, cataloging, and opening mail. Uh, Many women came to volunteer nights just to hear Mabel um, tell her tales of drag balls in Harlem and her version of the wildest parties of the Harlem Renaissance. Category is herstory, (laughs) archives, realness. Um, She was an integral part of the lesbian herstory archives. And without her um, and her pioneering work to preserve the stories and ephemera of queer women, 
we would know very, very little about her life. Um, remember, she is a really close friend of Joan Nessel, um, who is one of the founding members. And most of what we know about her is through recorded oral history. In 1985, Mabel was made the Grand Marshal of the New York City Pride Parade, a parade you and I are deeply familiar with. Yes. Mm-hmm. She had marched in the parade for years before this, um, and she marched with the Service and Advocacy for Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, and Transgender Elders, also known as SAGE. The year prior to being Grand Marshal, she was invited to speak to an audience at the Pride Parade. These were her words. I, Mabel Hampton have been a lesbian all my life for 82 years, and I am proud of myself and my people. I would like all my people to be free in this country and all over the world, my gay people and my black people. All of the information from today's Pride Mix is from various sources, including the Lesbian History Archive, the NPS Heritage Theme Study, and Them Magazine, which is a next-generational community platform which chronicles and celebrates the stories, people, and voices that are emerging and inspiring all of us, ranging in topics from pop culture and style to politics and news, all through the lens of today's LGBTQ community. This has been Pride Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. We're here to remind you to pride early and pride often, and that resilience is always out there. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. To see images from this episode, follow our Instagram at Gaze at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at gaze at the National Parks at gmail.com. Also, visit our website, gaze at the National Parks.com. All original artwork featured on Instagram and on our website is by Michael Ryan. All original music was written by Dave Seaman and performed by Dave Seaman, Mariella Klinger, and Sean Sleos. Our music producer is Skylar Fortgang. This episode was edited by Dustin Ballard. Ballard.